have this family medicine pie and we all go into it for the right reasons, but it's a hard job. And so direct primary care slices it up in a new way that makes it more palatable to the physician who wants a good job that they can take care of patients and the patient who wants a doctor who's going to care for them as an individual. Welcome everyone to the Primary Care Podcast. We explore stories, journeys, opinions, and philosophies told by doctors working in primary care. And now, the host of the show, Ross Tannick. Hey, and welcome to the Primary Care Podcast. This is the host of the show, Ross Tannick. I'm broadcasting from Truth Be Told Studios here in Denver. Got a great episode for you today with Dr. Brianna Seafelt. She's going to be talking about her practice called Direct Osteopathic Primary Care. You can visit her website at mydenverdo.com. We talk about direct primary care. We talk about osteopathy, some other topics as well. Uh, she's obviously truly passionate about practicing within her values and doing the difficult job of being a family doc in a way that's good for her, her family, and her patients. So we were actually originally going to record this episode in early October last year, 2021, but had to reschedule due to COVID. And then we encountered some issues while recording this episode as we did it just recently. Uh, so my recording software kept kind of crapping out on us and it stopped recording a few times, seven to be exact, uh, throughout the recording. And I think it had to do with the memory and storage on my computer. So this happens four times early on and then we got some bigger chunks without the recording program cutting out. Good news is, every time I noticed it immediately after the recording cut out and we basically picked it up right where we left it off. So you may hear a kind of obvious cut off or click or snap a few times throughout, but through the magic of editing and some post-production on my end, I still think it is totally news that is fit to print. And so we will. And really, we didn't lose any content that we discussed. That being said, troubleshooting the issue did take a little bit of time, and I wish I had more time to get a few more topics in with Dr. Bree. So perhaps she will grace us with a second appearance sometime in the future. So if you have any questions for her about anything that we either did or didn't get to today, Hit up the podcast on Instagram, Primary Care Podcast, or at Primary Care Podcast. Uh, also by email, theprimarycarepodcast at gmail.com. So now let's give a little love to our new sponsor and a fitting one for today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Frostiopathy the only monthly subscription service that delivers anatomy-themed ice cream shaped like obscure human body parts right to your front door. They come in shapes like the brachial plexus, corpus callosum, 
left superior epigastric artery, portal vein, glabella, radial styloid, and the canal of Schlem. Now with new flavors, strawberry or cherry hemangioma, cherry red macula, onion skin, cafe au lait, fried egg cell, tuberous sclerosis, peau de orange, rice water, maple syrup urine, port wine stain, honeycomb lung, cauliflower ear, nutmeg liver, and red currant jelly. They are all very delicious in their own right. They sent me over some samples and I've tried them all. Gotta say the pro move is combining the cafe au lait with the maple syrup urine. Mwah! Chef's kiss. Maybe throw in a little honeycomb lung on that and now we are talking. Visit frostyopathy.com and click on the picture of the common bile duct at the top middle of the page. And in the drop down menu, you tell them you heard about them on this very show. Go to frostyopathy.com. That is frostyopathy.com. All right, now let's get to the episode. My great guest today is Dr. Brianna Seafelt from the aforementioned direct osteopathic primary care practice, which is where we recorded this episode. She talks about many interesting things in this episode, including how she chose to go into medicine and her deep and thoughtful reasons why she specifically wanted to become a DO. She tells us about the world of direct primary care, DPC. She gives us some specific nuts and bolts about how that works. And we talk about the difference between concierge medicine and DPC. She gives us kind of her philosophy of how she thinks of primary care and how she saves patients money. And she walks us through the idea of DPC math and how to calculate money saved uh, in, in this endeavor, engaging in this type of primary care. She talks in depth about how she uses osteopathy as a model of medicine and also specific things like OMT and a particular niche that she has in the OMT world. Uh, We also talk about the many different arms of what she does in medicine because she uh, has a uh, bunch of different things that she does. She is overall just a great ambassador for primary care medicine and for direct primary care. And I think you will enjoy hearing all about her life and work. So let's go. Here is my talk with Dr. Brianna Seafeld. medicine in kind of a roundabout way. Um, my family, my mom and my uh, dad were both in the you know teaching industry. My dad worked for the school district. I really had no family that were in medicine at all, so I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Uh, it turns out that two years ago, my grandmother sent me an article of her great aunt, who was a physician, which I had not known about. She was the first woman physician in Tulsa, Oklahoma, back in the 1920s. She was one of the first women in her class of uh, medicine. And her, her daughter's obituary article about her mom's practice in the city of Tulsa back at that time was 
uh, amazing to me. It brought tears to my eyes because it's the kind of medicine I practice now in 2022 where she cared so much about her patients that her daughter commented she would do home visits. And if somebody like, you know, needed their toenails clipped while she was there, she would do it for them. Right. Because they had nobody else to do that kind of care for them. Yeah. It's wild how it's kind of come back around like (laughs) that. It is wild. And she would can her jellies in the morning, you know, before work and take care of all the kid care and the doctoring and, and, you know, in 2021, I I don't can any jellies. Right. But I like, you know, fire out emails to the school teachers and I get my kids ready for in the morning and I handle my, you know, pet care and my kid care and and my direct primary care practice too. Right. So it was really interesting that I had that lineage when I didn't even necessarily know it. Mm -hmm. Um, but when I was a child, I grew up in the middle of nowhere and had no siblings. I really loved animals. So I had um, a clinic in my uh, room that was for my stuffed animals. Nice. And I, w- I did surgery on them, and I, I cut their tags off, and I had their names alphabetized and on index cards. Nice. <laughs> and, like, adoption days and, wow. and, and surgery days for them. And it was, it was pretty great. So I, I always knew that I was going to be in some sort of caregiving, healing profession. Uh, as I got towards graduation from high school, I was still thinking about being a vet, but I grew up in a super small town, and so my vet's uh, wife was my chemistry teacher. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, you're smart enough to be a doctor. And I thought, well, that's weird. And I, you know, I still to this day don't really know why she did that. But it sparked a thought in me that I thought perhaps humans needed more help than animals. Mm-hmm. So I started to think about being a doctor at that time. I had been on a personal healing journey a couple of years prior to that. And I had ended up at a chiropractic office and and done acupuncture as a teenager for some, you know, musculoskeletal pain, some GI stuff, some health things that I was kind of up against. But Western medicine hadn't really been useful for me at that point. Right. So I thought, well, I'd like to be the kind of doctor that uses those types of modalities, these alternative modalities um, that had helped me personally. Yeah. So when I went to... Uh, Berkeley for my undergraduate degree, I was thinking already about alternative medicine, but I didn't know what that was going to look like Mm -hmm. until I started studying integrative medicine and alternative medicine at that time. And I met my first, you know, osteopath and and DO. And that was a revolution for me because I thought, well, this is a great combination, right? I can have my, my physician hat and I can have my alternative medicine hat kind of at the same time. You know, I was trying to really dive into in in undergraduate whether I wanted to be an MD that studied alternative medicine, which there were a lot of models for that at the time, including Dr. Andrew Weil. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were options as naturopathic physicians, which are not licensed in all 50 states then or today, yeah. unfortunately. Um, and there was, um, the DO model. So I had a a panel that I organized called the future of integrative medicine. Mm -hmm. And I had three women physicians, one DO, one MD and one ND. And it was interesting because they all basically practiced really similarly. They all made about the same amount of money. They all had overlapping subspecialties in alternative medicine and they had different degrees. Yeah. So I remember thinking, oh, it really doesn't matter which one I do. It matters, you know, what my foundation is Mm -hmm. for my education. Like I could go to MD school and learn osteopathic techniques later. I could go to, you know, naturopathic school and learn prescription stuff. Like I can learn all sorts of things at any one of these formats. 
but what is going to be my foundation? Yeah. And I wanted my foundation to be an osteopathy, to be in the hands-on treatment of osteopathic manipulation, mm -hmm. because I knew that if I didn't learn that in med school, I probably would never get as proficient at it yeah. if I just kind of tacked it on at the end. Right. Whereas you can tack on herbalism and you can tack on nutraceuticals and alternative medicine and even functional. And I also knew that in osteopathic school, I would get the foundation in pharmaceuticals and standard Western medicine. Right. So I thought, well, it's the best of both worlds, right? I get this allopathic Western medical training, but I also get this other piece. Because for me, even with today in 2022, when I look at how I use herbs and alternative medicine and how many people use nutraceuticals, um, we often still have the same Western medical approach, which is find it, fix it, make it go away. Mm -hmm. Right. So we're like, make a diagnosis. So find it, <laughs> you know, sure. fix it. And so that fix it can be with a prescription or it can be with a supplement. Right. Yeah. But it's the same mentality, which is find it, fix it, make it go away. Mm -hmm. I don't want to feel it anymore. So whatever it is, whatever that symptom is, but in all in osteopathy, what we look at is how do we support the health of this person? How do we support the health building up, the health healing? How do we not just find it, fix it, and make it go away, but how do we actually build that health that's within the person to surmount whatever symptom or problem that is there? Right. And that's a very different perspective. In fact, that perspective is unique to osteopathy and things like traditional Chinese medicine, mm -hmm. right? Where we look at the person in a completely different way, not as a broken machine that has a part that we need to swap out and fix, mm -hmm. but we look at the person as the whole machine. How do we make the whole machine work better together and that was why i chose osteopathy back then and that is still why i choose it today cool well i want to see if we can get to uh some of these specific right. topics yes. that are specific to your world so i might i want to jump yes. ahead here to uh what you do today which is direct primary care yes um can you give us a kind of an elevator pitch for dpc um how does it work and just what is it so patients uh directly contract with us so that there's no middleman between the patient and doctor experience. So we don't let the insurance companies and, and all of the kind of riffraff come in between that relationship. So patients pay $85 a month to be a member here at our clinic, and we take care of all their primary care needs for that monthly membership. Okay, 85 bucks a month. That seems pretty affordable. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we actually, for that membership cost, um, often save people money because we can get labs here on an order of magnitude about a third the cost of where they are in other places. Mm -hmm. So a standard wellness panel here where we check your liver, kidney, electrolytes, blood counts, thyroid, and even a vitamin D level runs $45. Okay, wow. Uh, that's very interesting. I, and I'm curious, I want to get into how that works exactly, yeah. how you're able to do that. Um, because what would that cost if you were, uh, you know, co contracted with um, uh, insurance companies and going through them? Like, how much would that that well, thing you just that's said a complicated, yeah. <laughs> complicated answer, of course, because insurance companies are so highly unpredictable. Yeah. Uh, especially in this day and age. But, you know, on order of magnitude, that same blood panel, it would not be unfathomable for it to be well over several hundred dollars, if not a thousand dollars. Right. In fact, the vitamin D alone with us is fifteen dollars. With mm -hmm. Medicare, it's two hundred and twenty. Yeah. For that one blood test. I was just going to say I was going to predict that vitamin D was about eighty dollars, but it, it totally depends, depends on your coverage. Of and course. 
who's right. paying for it and what it's there for. Yeah. Right. And so I got sick of being in the traditional you know, world uh, prior to this being employed um, by, a, you know, corporate um, organization. I had no contact with the cost. I had no contact with the in, like with what was going on, what could be predictive financially for my patients. Mm-hmm. I remember telling somebody one time that they needed an HIV test, and they said, "Well, doc, how much will that be?" And I said, "I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I I can tell you you need it, right? But I can't tell you how much it costs, and therefore it's hard for me to tell you if you really need it because what if that choice is between." food or between that and something else that you need to spend your your dollars on right and so if the that test is two hundred dollars and that's completely unreasonable for you who am i to say that it's needed if i can't tell you how much it costs right so i I knew that i had to do it a different way than i was doing it in corporate care Mm -hmm. uh, because i that uh, accountability and accessibility piece was definitely not there and I wasn't trained in it, and I didn't have any connection to the costs for patients. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other problem in the you know traditional fee for service model and in what's out there with corporate medicine is that a traditional panel for a full primary care doctor is around three thousand to five thousand patients per doctor. Yeah, that's wild. To that's me. a normal panel. Yeah. So I knew in the model that I was in, in insurance-based medicine, that you know I, I could not give a high level of care to every single patient who came in my door yep. and bill as high as I could to their insurance like I was trained to do mm-hmm. so that I could make my salary because I was production-based. So the only way I got paid was billing as high as possible to the patient, yeah. but spending as little time as I could with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet still keeping up on all the busy work of medicine yep. and all the paperwork of insurance billing and coding and all of that. Yeah. I, I just, there was no possible way mathematically that I could continue to give good care to my patients in that kind of setting. And I wasn't willing to sacrifice on that. Right. So about four years in, I thought, oh my gosh, I'm feeling a little burnout and I'm four years into practice mm-hmm. and that's not fair. And mm-hmm. it's not fair to my kids. I had two at the time. To work 65 hours a week for a job that I've worked two decades for to have and spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in med school to be four years into practice and not love it. Yeah. How can I leave my kids 65 hours a week and not come home like, man, I love my job. Yeah. No, that causes all sorts of problems just financially for you, ethically for you, um, logistically for you, and then also for your personal life and your your family life. Absolutely. And that 65 hour a week, just so you know, was a 40 hour week. Right. Right. Of course. So in quotation, so that 40 hour week was, you know, what my employer considered a 40 hour week took me 65 hours to complete with the paperwork and the background stuff that was right. needed in, right. in this in world that we live in today. Yeah. So you started your own practice. So I said, I can't do it this way. I'm going to do it a different way. And I did not want to do concierge medicine because I was worried at the time that that would meant that meant I would only cater to wealthy populations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had, can oh, yeah. Uh, I was gonna ask you to kind of make the um, the difference the the, the difference there. Yeah, what's yeah. the difference between DPC and concierge medicine? It's a very good question, and sometimes it comes down to price alone. Like you can sometimes look at a clinic and say, oh, they must be concierge because they charge one hundred and fifty to two hundred and fifty dollars a month, mm-hmm. versus direct primary care, which tends to run between fifty and. $100 a month. Okay. So people want to make the delineation on that line, but that's not the accurate delineation. 
concierge medicine came out of people being sick of the system and saying, you know what? I want to give better care to these Medicare clients of mine. They're complicated. They're sick. Okay. I'm seeing him in the hospital. I'm seeing him in the nursing home. I'm seeing him in my office doing all this care. I want to get paid more for that awesome work that I'm doing. Yeah. So they said, I'm going to charge a membership fee on the order of two to $300 a month, usually a couple thousand a year, like a retainer, like a, like a lawyer has. Mm-hmm. And I'm still going to bill Medicare because I'm seeing them in all these settings. So concierge medicine technically double dips between still billing insurance and also billing a membership fee. I see. Whereas direct primary care does not bill insurance at all, ever, period. I did not know that about concierge medicine. I, I didn't know that that was the origin of it and that it kind of is a hybrid model like that. I, it really I thought is. it was the same, but, but pricier, like you were saying. No, technically no. And so you don't necessarily save the patient money. Concierge medicine was never started to save the patient money. Mm-hmm. It was just to give better care. To give better care, yeah. right. And I had judgment about that before really learning about it because mm-hmm. I thought, oh, they're just trying to make more money. But no, they were trying to give better care across multiple different you know, settings with highly complex elders. And I understand that. And that still happens today. Sure. Now, you know, direct primary care started with a similar model in mind. But to be honest, back in like 20, no, probably, man, I hate to say this, but in 1999, Mm -hmm. I had an idea (laughs) (laughs) because I was a, you know, hippie college student at Berkeley and the community supported agriculture had just started. Mm -hmm. So that was, you know, you pay money into a farm and then you get your vegetables all year long. Right. You say, yeah, Yeah. people do that today. So I thought, wouldn't it be cool if you had a clinic like this and the money into the farm was money into the clinic, but then you got your care all year long from the clinic. Mm -hmm. So at the time I was managing a chiropractic office and I build insurance all the time. And I guess it was just right after college and I said, hey, I got an idea to run by you. And I said, what about this? And he said, no, there's no way that would go with insurance law. Mm-hmm, and I right. just let, you know, it's so many points in my career. And this is something I want you read or, or your listeners to hear. I let other people tell me that my ideas were crazy <laughs> and that they had, they couldn't be done. Mm-hmm. And I just like walked away from them. So this was the first point where I just walked away from it. And I went, oh, that's a bummer because I thought it was a great idea. Yeah. That's what I do today. People yeah. pay money into my clinic, which is my farm. Right. And I give them care all year long, all month long, every month. And that's direct primary care. Yeah. And here we are, and it is legal, and it is not against insurance law. I mean, you know, there's some some pieces there that there are still kind of we're working out the details with whether you can use your HSA to pay for your membership funds and things like that. Those have been kind of gray areas that are getting sorted out at the national level around direct primary care. But it is very clear that what I provide here in my clinic is not insurance. I provide a place for people to come for preventative primary care where they can not have to worry about what I call a collision with the healthcare industry, right? Yeah. So your health insurance should be used like car insurance, like a collision with the healthcare industry. If you go to the emergency room, if you have surgery, if you even see a specialist, that's a collision with the healthcare industry. And chances are you're going to meet your deductible no matter what your deductible is. Yeah. I'm a primary care doctor. I drive a Nissan Pathfinder, right? Sure. I do not drive a Porsche. I drive a Nissan. Okay. And why is that important? Because I am not high cost care. Yeah. I'm the gas and the oil changes in your vehicle, Mm -hmm. right? I'm making sure that you get your tune-ups, you get your labs done, that you don't have diabetes. If you have it, it's under control. Yeah. That is not high cost care. And it shouldn't be lumped into the same $1,000 a month to cover you and your family. Right. 
Yeah, I've heard I've heard that analogy quite a bit. The uh, with the car analogy that insurance is there for when you get into a car accident and you need you know some, you need uh, some collision care, but it's not there. You you don't get your tires changed uh, with insurance. You don't get your oil changed with insurance or just car wash or anything. All the things that you do to just be maintenance and upkeep, right? Yeah. To keep up your health, like we were talking about. Yeah. So when I went into, you know, wanting to be a holistic doctor, wanting to look at the root cause, wanting to look at how to build the health, all of that takes time, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have 6,000 patients on your panel, you don't have the time, right? And then you're billing this high cost care all the time, but not actually getting to the root of some of the real issues with people. So I saw direct primary care as an answer to meeting my patient where they're at financially, actually saving them money, giving higher quality of care, not going crazy, seeing a million patients and having more satisfaction in my personal career. Mm -hmm. And it has been all those things. That's amazing. I mean, that's really inspirational to someone like me who's just entering uh, into, you know, re residency this year. So uh, I'm assuming I'll be jaded and burnt out <laughs> soon enough and, and disillusioned Happens. with the whole system uh, for sure. But uh, I really like hearing these stories. Uh, kind of a couple of things I wanted to circle back to. Uh, one, I don't want to forget like how the whole cheap labs things work yeah. and I don't want to forget about the same kind of question with imaging or with going yeah. to specialists or whatever other things that come up with people's healthcare. Um, but yes. also, um, you know, you talked about saving money. I wanted to ask you, do you have the numbers in your head about how much you actually save people? Um, I know it's kind of hard to say because you know, you're saving them right. money that didn't get spent. So, right. uh, well, so a couple things. Um, it's hard to to quantify that because insurance world likes to build what I call the little black box, right? Mm -hmm. So when we first started here, um, we we do take Medicaid here. So we build Medicaid at this clinic. So we're a hybrid clinic. And so my first medical students, when I first started building Medicaid, we took a ward off. I said, how much do you think we should bill for that? They're like, I don't know. I'm like, I don't know either, right? It turns out Medicaid actually publishes the little black box, so we know actually how much Medicaid will pay for the CPT code to remove a wart. Yeah. But not every – you can't find that so easily for every single payer on the planet. Uh -huh. So what happens in healthcare is we don't know how much is in the little black box exactly for every single payer, how much they all pay to take off that wart. Yeah. So we bill as high as possible, right, so that we hope that any number below that will capture, right? So if we bill 20 bucks to take off the wart, but we were able to get paid 60 we're only going to get 20 nobody's going to give you 60 if you build 20 mm -hmm. right so what happens in healthcare what has occurred is that nobody the little black box is very ambiguous nobody knows what's exactly inside of it or how to get out of it the highest number that we could get paid for so we say that'll be two thousand dollars to take off that work Mm -hmm. because we know that that's the highest number, Just, right? Yeah. And so then what happens? They're like, Psh, Dr. Bree billed us $2,000, but we are going to write off slash save our patient our negotiated, you know, $1,900. So congratulations, patient. Mm -hmm. Blue Cross saved you $1,900 because Dr. Bree billed 2000 That was crazy, but it only we only reimburse at $100, uh -huh. right? Yeah. So then the patient's like, wow, Dr. Bree billed $2,000 to take that word off. That's not a lot, but man, good thing I have Blue Cross because it saved me $1,900. Right. It's just the illusion it's of saving It's the illusion. Yeah. Exactly. And so what happens 
So that has occurred in medicine for the past several decades, yeah. right? So the the illusion of how much money are we actually saving people is impossible to capture, right? Yeah, because right. if you try to say, well, what exactly is this lab panel? There's no actual number. LabCorp won't give you that number. Nobody will give you the actual number. Right. We don't even know what the average reimbursement is for vitamin D, for uh -huh. example, okay. right? When we say it's 220 with Medicare and 15 with us. <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, there's a lot of numbers in between there, and we don't actually <laughs> yeah. get to know. Yeah. So I do. Some of my astute patients have um, have you know tracked their savings of switching to a high deductible plan and partnering it with direct primary care. Mm -hmm. And I want to say one of them. There's like a quote on our website somewhere um, that says that I think they thought they saved that three thousand dollars or something the first year with us, which is fantastic. That's pretty good. Uh, what I can say personally, because I'm a try it before you buy it person, is that when I was an employed physician, I decided to have a direct primary care doctor myself before I nice. opened a clinic because yeah. I thought, well, I should try it before I buy it. I, that, my thought too. <laughs> <laughs> or jump all the way out of the ship. Right. And so, uh, I remember changing my high deductible, my, you know, good insurance plan to a high deductible plan. And I put that in quotations here with us together because, you know, in the 1990s, there was good insurance. There really was like good insurance. Now mm -hmm. in 2022, there's not good insurance anymore. Yeah. Even good insurance with a quote unquote low deductible still has co-pays and co-insurance. And oh, by the way, they don't cover labs. And oh, by the way, they don't cover prescriptions, right? We still have these um, these carve outs that, that make insurance really complicated to yeah. put into, unfortunately, like a really truly good plan. Mm -hmm. um, there are occasional ones, but it's pretty rare, right? So what happens, um, you know, is we figure out like, okay, how do we figure out how we save people money? So when I said, I'm going to go with the high deductible plan instead of the low deductible plan with my employed physician-ness like seven years ago, yeah, I went from paying 185 a pay period to paying like 60 a pay period. Okay. So that saved me hundreds of dollars a month. So my direct primary care membership fee coming out of that still saved me, let's say, $300 a month or so, right? Mm -hmm. So if you put that savings of switching from a low deductible plan to a high deductible plan, and let's say that that, that delta is a couple hundred dollars, yeah. right? And the direct primary care is only 85 right? So you're still saving, let's say, $200 a month. Okay. If you put that $200 a month away in a savings account that is not in right your spending account, yeah. then you can save money for that high deductible and at the end of the year if you haven't used it then good for you that's money you save those are healthcare dollars you saved yeah, right sure and so every year in the season of the open enrollment i write an article on our on our website called dpc math and every year nice. i go onto the exchange <laughs> and i say what if i was buying insurance for my family of four mm -hmm. what does it look like this year how much is it to have a low deductible plan versus a high deductible plan? Mm -hmm. And if I partner with that high deductible plan, my direct primary care membership fee, how much money are our members saving yeah. with us? And I write that every single year and every single year, it makes more financial sense to have a high deductible plan and direct primary care where we can actually save you money so you don't have to touch your deductible, Yeah. right? Uh, every single year in five years of being open, that wow. makes sense financially for people. Yeah. That's incredible. I love that. I love the simple math that you can just show people the answer to their pretty big problem, which is how do I pay for healthcare and how do I get good healthcare while and, doing You it? know, the, the thing that it comes down to us every year is when you pay cash for services in healthcare, it often saves money. Mm -hmm. So we don't negotiate special discounts on imaging. I would love to say, yeah, we're so cool. We negotiate special mm -hmm. discounts on imaging, but we don't. Yeah. What we do is we are your cost 
conscious healthcare shopper. So we have for five years found the cheapest imaging, the cheapest this, the cheapest this, the cheapest but still high quality, this, that, or the other thing that people need with their healthcare. For example, just this month, one of our self-pay patients said, hey, you know what? That place you sent me for affordable MRIs, Simon Med, they do mammograms. And their mammogram self-pay rate is even cheaper than the place you sent me last year. And I said, fantastic. Thank you for letting me know. Mm -hmm. So our office manager called and said, hey, Simon Med, can we get an update on your self-pay pricing? Because we want to know what all we can send to you. Because you have great customer service. You do an awesome job. And we know exactly how much it costs to get this imaging, that imaging, and the other imaging. And so now we know that. And so that's where we directed all our mammograms now. Hey, you want the cheapest mammogram in the city? That is where it is right now. How much does a mammogram cost these days? You know, I wish I knew exactly. Last week, I want to say it was 160, but then I found out it was even less than I thought it was going to be. So I don't remember what it actually ended up being. But less than 160? In October every year at Health Images, it's $99 during Breast Cancer Awareness Week. And that's, you know, to before that where we would direct all of our Mm self-pay. But I want to say that Simon Med even came in a little bit lower than that recently, but I don't remember the specific number. That's okay. But I know where to find it. And so when my patient says, hey, I need a self-pay mammogram, I go right into my computer and I'm like, oh, this is the current price at this current place to our knowledge, yeah. right? So we're constantly evolving with the healthcare industry saying, where do we get the cheapest this? Where do we get the cheapest that? Nice. We have specialists in our network, some of which will not accept self-pay patients. Mm-hmm. Well, then we don't refer our insured patients there either. Yeah. Because we also try to reward, if you will, patients that, you yeah. know, these referral sources that are good to our self-pay patients, good to our health share patients, good to patients using an alternative model. Um, we want to also reward them with those insurance payments, right? Mm-hmm. And so when we have a referral ne- person and or, or imaging center or a specialist in our referral network that doesn't treat our patients right, that doesn't treat our patients respect, that has a bad system, yeah. that won't bill properly, that doesn't bill fairly, we're like, okay, we'll find another one for that. I love it. It's like, uh, I respect the hustle of it, right. you know, because it's not <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's not just, um, you know, everything's already kind of cut out for you uh, and you have obvious decisions that you're going to make and there's already a decision tree i'm kind of thinking of like where you would refer someone if you were in like the what we called earlier the standard western doctor well in the corporate care model it's completely different because when i was employed in corporate medicine which i will try not to name drop here Mm -hmm. um but when i was had an employer which i like to say that owned me but you know i was employed by them it felt like being owned because I had certain things told to me, like you don't have to refer to our hospital imaging, but wink, wink. It's great. If you do, we do keep track of it. Yeah. That's creepy. Yep. So what happens when you refer to the hospital imaging center? Well, they have the x-ray cost, but then the patient has a facility fee on top of that, which Mm -hmm. almost doubles the cost to the patient. So if the patient has a high deductible plan or if they're a self-pay patient or if they use something alternative like a health share, um, then that cost goes directly to the patient. So just by referring to your hospital to get their x-ray, you've doubled the cost of their Mm x-ray. Instead of going across the street to an independent imaging center like the two I mentioned already, Health Images or Simon Med, it's going to be half the cost immediately because they don't charge the facility fee. That is incredible. So it's a simple fix, right? Yeah. It's a simple fix just by saying, oh, well, shoot. Well, I don't have to send them to the hospital. I can send them across the street and it's half the cost. Yeah. Is there a reason somebody wouldn't want to, 
be interested in this line of work rather than, you know, be in the, the corporate medicine world? Well, I think what happens, and this will happen to you too, Ross, because it happened to me, but when I was an intern, I still had these crazy ideas that I like someday wanted to have my own clinic. You know, back in 1999, I was like, it'd be cool if I had my own clinic and I did it this other way. Right. And then they were like, we can't do it that way, but I still wanted my own clinic one day. Right. Yeah. And so I got towards graduation and, and people said, oh, well, what are you going to do when you graduate? And I thought, oh, I'm thinking about maybe have my own clinic. And they said, oh, there's no way you can do that unless you're independently wealthy, which of course I wasn't because I was a resident. Uh -huh. And so the message from, unfortunately, even some of my um, attendings, but definitely from the hospital leadership and the recruiter was like oh yeah yeah nice idea yeah. honey that's Enjoy never that. gonna yeah, happen right and but you know what we'll do for you is we'll employ you we'll employ you we'll take off all the burdens of the administrative blah 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 business stuff you don't even have to worry about or understand <laughs> and we'll take care of you and we'll just make it easy and you just come right in yeah and i i bought into that you know i did i did that for four years and yeah, I thought enticing. it would be easier. It yeah. sounds great to me as you're saying it right now. I don't want to deal with any of the <laughs> hard don't. stuff that I don't know how to People do don't. that I wasn't trained in doing. In fact, I was uh, recently just talking to um, a, a business consultant for d physicians who works with a company called Physicians Ally. Um, I was talking to her. Uh, she's going to be a guest on the podcast um, probably right before your episode. But um, it's perfect because one of the things that I was talking about was her negotiating contracts with insurance companies. Yes. And then I asked, you know, about, okay, but what about people who don't take insurance? She's like, oh, like direct primary care? No, those people are happy. <laughs> Right. Which is, it was just, that's how she phrased right. it. Right. Well, is, that's what happened. So I worked in corporate medicine thinking, this is going to be great. You know, they're going to take all the stuff off of me that I don't want to have on me. That'll be lovely. Mm -hmm. So I started a clinic for them. And it, to be honest, I felt like I was on the front lines of the infantry because they moved our clinic into a place where a competitive hospital was also moving into. So this issue of whose hospital are you going to send the person for imaging was paramount in my mind because mm -hmm. I knew that I was on the edge for my corporation of a catchment area where they wanted to capture all those patients slash that money and keep it at their primary hospital campus. So they put me as like their little, you know, infantry on that line to right. keep people going to the this branch of my hospital and not going to neighborhood closest branch hospital, right? right yeah. And I was very clear that I was an automaton for the corporation yeah, at that time to make them money and the keep my referrals home, right? Um, so that was an interesting world, but I thought it was fine. So I, I wrote the website. I named the clinic. I um, hired my best friend. Um, I hired another resident the year after that. We got up to 5,000 patients and nine employees in, in four short years. And again, I, you know, I thought it was going to be great, but then I was in the same situation where I felt like I was getting squeezed from every t side. My employer said, you know, in not so many words, bill insurance as high as possible, but spend as little amount of time with people so that you can churn people through the system, mm -hmm. make the money that you need because that's how you get paid, but also, you know, keep up this productivity level. Classic. Every month they came in and they were like, you know, is your productivity at this level? And there was even like a little chart that you could be highlighted on if you were on the, the bad list, the naughty list <laughs> oh, for great. not being productive <laughs> enough, which probably meant that you were actually listening to your patients and caring about them. 
Yeah. And of and of course that was like disincentivized, right? So I felt gross in that circumstance and I thought I cannot do it this way. And so I finally realized that I can create my dream and I can create what I want to be as a physician. And I don't have to be stuck in this model anymore. So I struck on my own to do direct primary care because I was very sick of what I was in and I didn't feel like it was the right way to be. Yeah. Amazing. I, 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 we're up against it with time. So I want to get into some uh, topics of osteopathy. Yes. Um, you've kind of talked about a uh, little bit of the background of you and your interest in osteopathy, but, uh, it plays a pretty big role in your practice today, I imagine. Yes, absolutely. I still am one of the dinosaurs of the, you know, uh, <laughs> the osteopathic profession that I still do hands-on traditional osteopathic manipulation every single day that I'm in clinic. Yeah. Uh, in what fact, kinds of things are people coming to you with? You know, I see people with um, musculoskeletal complaints that you would think make mm -hmm. sense. Like I saw a gentleman today who had an accident, you know, and he has some chronic pain. Mm -hmm. um, I see people with headaches. I see people with chronic sinusitis. Um, I see people and do hands-on treatment for a variety of what people would think of, you know, somebody would go to a chiropractor or a physical therapist or a massage therapist for. Mm -hmm. I often say my, my non-branded uh, description of osteopathy is gentle chiropractic, physical therapy, and massage therapy combined because osteopaths mm -hmm. taught all those people, all those techniques. If right. you look back at the 1800s, right. who taught the first chiropractor? An osteopath, right? Sure. Yeah. Who coined the term? cranial sacral osteopathy and osteopath, okay. Dr. Upledger, right? And then many of our manual techniques are used today in physical therapy with muscle energy and myofascial release and all of that. Those are all yeah. osteopathic techniques, yeah. right? So, you know, that to me, a lot of people think of musculoskeletal complaints and of course it works for that. Yeah. But what people don't think about is the other piece again about stimulating the health and focusing on the health of the patient. Mm -hmm. um, osteopathy works great for the nervous system. It it works great for the chronic stress patient. How so? How does that work? Let's say, can, can you paint a picture of a yeah. patient visit? Or Sure. A, yeah. So I come in and I've got headaches and I've got, you know, whatever. And it turns out, well, the headaches are from jaw clenching and the jaw clenching is from stress and the stress shows up at night and it's also insomnia. And it comes from this place that we have this chronic level of fight or flight and we just can't calm down. Mm -hmm. So what does osteopathy do? Well, yeah, I mean, I can find it, fix it, and make it go away. I can say, oh, it's your TMJ, and it's causing a tension headache, and there's a tension-type headache situation, not a migranous mm -hmm. picture or whatnot. That's my Western medical brain, yep. right? To diagnose. Right. I'm going to diagnose it. I'm yep. going to find a treatment. I'm going to try to make you not suffer, right? That's my job, of course. I'm a physician. But I also am going to say, what else is here? How do we stimulate the health? How do we access the parasympathetic nervous system? Mm -hmm. How do we help the person to feel grounded how do we help them to like let go of the tension in their body and their mind and their spirit and so i can spend 45 minutes with my hands on that person and they can start to access and feel what it feels like to feel into that health right to mm -hmm. feel into that parasympathetic nervous system yeah and that can unwind patterns that are not just physical yeah um 
So what kinds of techniques are you using for someone like that? Uh, like the, the so patient you just talked often about. the indirect techniques, because so much of our world is direct and, and in your face and man, I feel it. That was a great massage and it really got in there. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and we're so like, you know, aggressive in our world today with our sympathetic nervous system. We really, it takes a lot to feel something. Right. But the indirect techniques that we use in osteopathy, like cranial, which is cranial osteopathy, mm-hmm. also known in the massage world is a kind of a different version but you know linked in some way the cranial sacral techniques Mm -hmm. Um, those techniques are really aimed at being subtle and calming the nervous system down and kind of stimulating that other piece that in traditional Chinese medicine they call chi and in yoga they call prana right Mm -hmm. and some people call it the life force energy right so in in osteopathy we call that the primary respiratory mechanism that's the parasympathetic activation the calming of the nervous system the rising of the actual relaxation right okay so we bring that out in people with certain manual techniques that kind of balance the stressors of the world today Mm -hmm. now some patients don't even know I'm doing that, honestly. <laughs> it's nothing we have to talk about, right? Right. You're it's not just walking a part through of each the technique. treatment, right? Yeah. So people walk away and they're like, oh, man, that feels good. Yeah. You know, today, I mean, even my staff said, man, that guy walked out with a glow. I have not seen him so happy after his treatment. And they said, how did it go? And he said, great. I mean, you can't argue with results like that, right? Sure, yeah. But the other people that come to see me for osteopathy is a kind of a niche market that I'm known for, and it's babies that are having a hard time with nursing Mm -hmm. because there's some complicated um, both musculoskeletal um, and just kind of anatomic components of babies that are having a hard time with breastfeeding. Yeah. Um, And I just kind of have a a little niche market with that. People know me as, as somebody that can help their babies with that. So I have... Uh, dentists and lactation consultants and pediatricians and and kind of moms groups that have long referred to me for that subset and so that's a, a large part of my osteopathic practice is just with babies and it's so joyful yeah wow that's that's really cool babies come to you babies with their parents i'm assuming yes um come and uh you know I'm just trying to think of it. Are people paying just a one-time fee for those types of things yeah, or, so or other yes types of things they just want to come as like an urgent care and come have no a, so we a don't visit. do any urgent care that's not for our membership so our our clinic is really structured as what's called a hybrid dpc practice so uh-huh. there's some dpc practices that are t- pure dpc um and all they do is the membership and the primary care that's all they do but as you can see dr Bree doesn't fit very well in any boxes so i couldn't <laughs> right. just be completely you know yeah. enclosed around pure dpc unfortunately certainly would make my life much less complicated uh-huh. um but i have chosen uh intentionally around my value system right because i had the opportunity to strike out on my own and say i'm gonna take my crazy dreams and i'm gonna put my values out there because i know if i'm practicing and align with my own values i'm gonna feel rewarded in what i do mm-hmm. and what did i spend all my time years and money and medicine training like you have done mm-hmm. i did all of that to have a career that was rewarding that was in line with my own personal values of helping people right mm-hmm. um and so i decided to create a clinic that you know is in line with my personal values so I, I have the direct primary care model. So people have a f- accessible and affordable care. Yep. Um, so they have a good relationship with us. And so they can do that without having to use their insurance if they don't need to. Right. Mm-hmm. We that's still the have, monthly subscription That's the monthly model. subscription. Right. Yep. And, and people don't they can have great insurance and still come here because we're awesome. And that works, too. Yeah. Um, but then we also chose to do the osteopathic manipulation um, as a fee for service for babies only. I used to see uh, any comers for osteopathy only, but I got too busy. So right now we only see members for 
osteopathic manipulation and they get a stellar discount on my manipulation services or babies. Those are the two fee-for-service okay. you know, arms we have in osteopathy. So if I'm a member and mm-hmm. I want to get some uh, OMT yes. going, that's a, a separate fee? $140. Okay. Yep. Whereas most of my colleagues in the area that are cash pay for manipulation will be between 190 and 250 for that same service. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's a significant discount that our members get by being a member for yeah. 85 and then the manipulation on top of that for the 140, um, you know, as opposed to going somewhere else where they just get the manipulation for, mm-hmm. you know, 250 or so, um, uh, plus or minus, um, and then also have to have a primary care, which, you know, if they're high deductible, is going to be self-pay until they've met their deductible. Yeah. Um, so that's our direct primary care branch. And then we have our osteopathic manipulation branch. Um, and then we have our branch that serves Medicaid clients. Mm-hmm. And we're just a traditional Medicaid clinic in that regard. Uh, and that's really um, born out of the fact that I like to work with um, all sorts of people, including people that don't have a lot of money. Yeah. Um, that's always been something I did. I, I served Medicaid clients in residency and at my last job. And a, a subset, probably like two-thirds of our current Medicaid clients have been with me for over 10 years. Wow. So we don't take hmm. new Medicaid clients. They're clients that are near and dear to my heart. Some of them I honestly consider like family and love them like you would love an extended family member. Yeah. Um, Oh, you don't take new ones, you said. We have not taken new ones in a while. Okay. um, Because it's important in the direct primary care model um, that we, you know, be careful about things that cost overhead. And one of the reasons we don't bill insurance is because it, it... cost money to bill insurance uh-huh. it's not free to bill insurance you usually have to have a billing agency right. i have to pay our manager to bill medicaid it takes time you know for her to do that yeah um and uh you know as you probably have heard medicaid doesn't really reimburse all that well mm-hmm. so it's really a um a service piece that we do to um, have a small portion of our clinic be medicaid wow so how many what's your patient panel at our current members are around 600 total all comers okay that's Mm -hmm. interesting i was just watching a video about dpc saying that that's kind of the ideal uh you know place to be at for a patient pool or patient panel i think Um, it's ideal for people that are not me i am very happy to have a physician assistant to help me because the other branch of our clinic Mm -hmm. is that i do a lot of alternative medicine so Mm -hmm. i do alternative medicine that is outside traditional osteopathy i manage women's hormones um, I do what we call gut rehab, which is to help people with, you know, getting to the root cause of some of their GI systems mm-hmm. um, or symptoms and turning those around. Um, we do what's called stress recovery, which is an alternative um, medicine approach to stress and neurotransmitter balance and mild depression and anxiety. And like, I'm so stressed, I just don't know how to get out of this place of burnout. So we call that our stress recovery program. So those are all programs that we have here um, that people can access as members. So so for me, because I do so many different things, m- my patient panel has to be smaller um, because I can't, you know, I, my, my whole day is direct primary care, right? right my day right. is alternative medicine, direct primary care, osteopathy, Medicaid, all of it. Right. Um, so for that reason, a practice of this size does really well with having a helper. So that's why we have our, our physician assistant, Kat, who joined us this year, and she's been lovely. Awesome. So is that kind of 600 people split between two people? Or is it like We're, uh, we're actively 50/50? accepting new members because I think we could you know our goal in, in hiring cat is to be able to expand our model yes. um because you know i i think it's important to think outside the box obviously i'm an outside the box thinker mm-hmm. um but i also you know when i thought about doing stuff differently um i've never been particularly motivated to just do it differently for me 
right? I mean, it's great. I have a great practice. I'm very happy with it. Mm -hmm. But that's what I like to call the island approach, right? Like I made this nice little island. I'm going to practice on it until I retire. Then I'm going to be happy that I made this wonderful little island that yeah. all these people got to come and enjoy great health care. And boy, <laughs> right. wasn't it nice. And as nice as that sounds and as wonderful as it hopefully will be through my career, I actually do have a broader vision to change how healthcare is practiced in the United States. I think the direct pr primary care model is beautiful. I think it makes happy doctors. It makes happy you know, physician assistants. It makes happy patients. Um, the only people it doesn't make happy is the insurance companies. I don't really care. It certainly doesn't make business admin people happy, but I don't care about that either. So, you know, for me, I I've been very happy with the direct primary care model and I want to see it grow and I want to see it go beyond just me as an individual person. And so to do that, I want to expand our reach, right? And so that's why yeah. I'm training Kat, all these like alternative medicine things mm -hmm. I do yep. so she can learn um, so that she can, you know, kind of follow in that footsteps, if you will, and expand our footprint. So, you know, hopefully we can continue to do that with other budding physicians as they come out of residency and see that direct primary care can be a solution to working for, you know, this corporation versus that corporation versus that corporation. Mm -hmm. um, and hopefully we can, you know, kind of emerge as a place where patients can continue to access the kind of care that we have over the coming years. So, you know, our goal is to really expand beyond me as an individual person yeah, and the that, care that I can give. That's really cool. I think you're definitely making waves or just the, the whole movement is making waves in, in that way. Um, before I ask you about kind of maybe the expansion, the policy, um, yeah aspect there i kind of want to ask one more kind of nuts and bolts question about how it all works is how do you take time off uh i get i get that it makes sense if you have a pa but let's say right. before you had a pa how does uh going on vacation work or just having a right. day off work? you know um again so our vision in this practice is to re-envision healthcare right? Provide service mm -hmm. and model balance. Okay. So modeling balance was a number one thing. Why did I leave my last job? Because I was almost burned out four years into practice and it wasn't fair to me and it wasn't fair to my family and it wasn't fair to my patients. So how do I model balance? Well, it so happens that direct primary care is one of the, one of the most popular places in the entire country for direct primary care is Colorado. Mm -hmm. We're, I think, number one in how many direct primary care clinics there are in the state. Yeah. Um, so I made friends. I have lots of great friends in direct primary care. Nice. The very first time I thought about direct primary care, I went out to dinner with a friend who was in direct primary care, and that's how I had the moment. I'm like, all oh, these are happy family doctors. They love their jobs. Mm -hmm. They're happy. I remember thinking, where did these people come from, and what are, what Kool-Aid are they drinking? Because yeah. I would like to have a sip, right. you know, because I'm that's not what I'm feeling about my corporate <laughs> job. So I have those friends still, and I we have called each other. We have texted each other. We have covered each other. We've covered each other at clinic and after-hours calls. We've covered each other for vacations. Um, we just play in the same sandbox together and support each other. Wow, that's really grassroots, I think. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's not complicated. Yeah. I don't even pay them for it. They don't pay me for it either, right? But right. you have to remember that people think, oh, my gosh, you're on call all the time, and I am. But, you know, our busy call weekend with the amount of members that we have right now is about three to four calls per mm -hmm. weekend. Yeah. There are many weekends we don't get any calls at night. We rarely get calls during the week. And that is not the case if you talk to your friend in corporate medicine, right? Yeah. If you cover a clinic call for a corporate clinic that has six to seven or more thousand patients, I mean, you are on call all 
weekend. You don't do anything else, right? Yeah. That is not my world of call. Yeah. I probably haven't had that many calls in five years that some of those people have in a weekend, right? Mm-hmm. So, and our patients are great because they get out of the PTSD of like, oh my gosh, I couldn't access care before Friday at 5 p.m. So now I have to call the on-call doctor because I don't know what to do next. But our patients can contact us all day whenever they want to. They know how to get a hold of us. Yeah. So they get out of that fear-based place yeah. that they, you know, need somebody to talk to at like midnight or whatever because they know we're going to be there. So we have a great relationship back and forth and they know we have lives and they respect me as a human. So it's fantastic. So, you know, it's not really an impact um, being on call and it was not an impact being with by by myself even. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's that's uh, really amazing. I didn't really know that there was such a kind of a, a network Yes. That you can uh, really call on to scratch each other's backs when when you need to, and everyone's going to need that. So right, yeah, that's really cool. Um, you helped uh, Robin Dickinson, yes, uh, set up her practice. Is that right? No, she was up before me, actually. Oh, yeah, she around. helped me. Yeah, okay. she helped me. I knew there was some connection because she, she had um, her clinic was called. Um, what is community it? Community supported. Yes. Medicine? Community supported family medicine. So I met her at that dinner of the happy doctors where I was like, who are these people? And she <laughs> sat next to me and she's like, mine's called community supported family medicine. I'm like, I had that idea in right. 1999. Yeah. Right. CSA, so we were instantly right? friends. Yeah. Yes. And she mentored me through the initial stages for sure. She is one of the many, many, many supporters that I called upon. Cool. So yeah, looking, you were just mentioning the uh, idea of expansion and, um, just throughout the entire country, maybe the world, of just this model of care, just this idea of care, really. Yeah. Um, how, what's going on with that in terms of the, the legality of it, the legislation? Are people fighting to tear it down? I imagine they are. No, um, you know, I mean, there are. So, you know, I am not like a, a great, um, you know, when it comes to, you know, high level policy and advocacy, I've done it one time and it was around direct primary care in Colorado with my friends in direct primary care. And I went down to the Capitol and I dressed all up and one of my patients came and talked about how great it was and it was awesome. So it was a great experience. And that was probably the one time I'll ever really do that level of okay. <laughs> advocacy. I mean, I'll do it again if direct primary care needs me to for sure, but mm-hmm. that's not my calling. Um, but it was lovely because um, we got legislation through that clarified this whole not insurance issue and made it clearly legal for you to practice direct primary care in the state of Colorado. Um, And that was uh, probably like 2017 or something at this point. It was right in the beginning of starting my practice and it was, it was a fun experience. Um, So we have, we have some really great um, resources here in Colorado. Um, There is um, the Rocky Mountain Direct Primary Care Alliance um, that is under the Direct Primary Care Alliance that is national. That is the kind of grassroots organization of these friends of mine, Mm -hmm. uh, as I mentioned. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we have other people that are fighting on an advocacy level for direct primary Mary Care, and there are uh, several other organizations as well that do that. So, you know, and they and there are people like uh, you know Phil Eskew, who's a lawyer and a DO, who who is in charge of the website DPC Frontier. Yes, and I've he been keeps on that yeah he keeps track of where the DPCs are, and he keeps track of the legislation and keeps us all informed. Um, yeah. There are conferences that we go to. You know, there there's lots of things that kind of keep our ear to the ground in direct primary care because it's important when you're 
you know, right outside of the system, but still within it, right? Like mm -hmm. we can't all be completely outside of the system because our patients still have insurance. We still have to interact with the system. We still right. want to do the right thing and, and abide by the proper laws. So, yeah. um, so of course that's a part of, of what we do, but, um, you know, it really, uh, it's one of those things that you think is like, oh, it's this like niche or the spinoff. And then you put your ear to the ground and you realize, wait a minute, this is a tidal wave of change that's happening all over the country. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's right next to you. And oh my gosh, in Colorado, there's so many options for direct primary care and yeah. and then you realize it's it's really a movement and, mm -hmm. and it's a beautiful thing to be a part of that on that website you know you can go on there's a good map yeah i don't know if that's like the main I'm feature the of the web website yeah, yeah. the mapper mm -hmm. right yeah uh really cool because you just see so many around here um here, and I here being Denver, Colorado. Well, and, and then, you know, when my patients move and they say, well, I'm going to Pennsylvania, I'm like, great. They'll go to dpcmapper.com and, and check it out and, and yeah. pick a direct primary care near you because this model's awesome and you should do it out there too. Wow. Really cool. Well, you've given us, me and all the listeners, so much to think about and so much to uh, be excited about. I'm, I mean, I, I'm really excited right now. <laughs> you, got, right. you got me. It is you fun, you know, and yeah. I, I have to, the one thing I tell people like, um, you know, students and, and even Kat, the PA who, who came to work for us is that, you know, it's the same pie, right? It's still the family medicine pie. Family medicine's a hard job. It's not an easy job. Nobody told me that because mm -hmm. I didn't have those family doctor friends or family members to warn me, uh -huh. you know, it's a hard pie. You know, people have hard things that happen in their lives. Like, you know, we have, we have families in our practice who have lost loved ones. Like they're children and their parents are aging and have Alzheimer's and we have patients that are diagnosed with terminal illnesses and, and we have patients mm -hmm. that we love and care about that won't take care of themselves and you know we have people that are, are struggling with their mental health like it's it's family we have this family medicine pie and we all go into it for the right reasons but it's a hard job and so direct primary care slices it up in a new way that makes it more palatable to the physician who wants a good job that they can take care of patients and the patient who wants a doctor who's going to care for them as an individual. Amazing. I, I really uh, am truly excited about this, uh, this topic and just this prospect of uh, a big, like you said, a big tidal wave of uh, change in medicine. So I hope, so. I hope you. when you get out, you have choices of direct primary clinics to go to so you don't have to start your own yeah. <laughs> and that you can decide which niche of direct primary care is best for you. Cool. We got a patient here for you. So I think I'll let you Great. go. But thank you for uh, being amazing and, and sticking with all the uh, the starts and stops. Well, stick with your dream. That's what I have to say, because so many times people told me that it wasn't possible and it turned out that it was amazing. All right. Yep. That's that's an inspirational note to end on. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Dr. Bree. You bet. Yes, that was a good episode. I hope that splicing it together worked well enough and it wasn't too jarring for you. I kind of felt like I was a DNA repair enzyme while I was doing it, but I think it worked pretty well and I'm pretty proud of the post-production. So I just appreciate you all listening and uh, hey, if you keep listening, I will keep getting great guests on. So of course, share this podcast with a friend and Leave a comment or a review or some sort of rating or whatever you got to do to uh, spread the love. All right. Until next time, my friends. Thanks. Just add a little pizzazz. You know what I'm saying? Pizzazz. Pizzazz.
this was the universe and it bloomed and birthed the moon and the earth nothing ever happened till it was observed by the first animals with optic nerves it was a fight for survival many died though friends were formed to fight mutual rivals man and woman appeared and they realized there was a thing called love bringing joy into their lives boom they were civilized went from stones and bones to phones and drones as many kings took the throne built empires and the stories well known history ticks along like a metronome and then i came to be walk talk and throw stuff all grown up i got a job now and showing up i'm sleep deprived i'm misaligned my appetite is primed to feed the ego almost all the time and then i met you lovely and smooth you quickly removed my modern man's blues i want to celebrate every breath that i take because i'm afraid i'm dreaming and i don't want to wait so baby let me grab a hold of your body mind and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know baby let me grab a hold of your body mind and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know Grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. The universe was my universe, but I left to pursue the search of love. But sometimes it hurt along the way. If there's anything I've learned, create a garden, plant flowers in the dirt. I'm gonna be the sunshine and rain, protect you from the pain as I push you toward the flames. Play the game and wonder, am I the hunted or the hunter? younger i met god and i hugged her she said hey baby instead of getting lost within how about you try to walk a mile in my moccasin stop begin let the thoughts and visions guide you further down the road going inch by inch don't sprint take it slow protect your soul travel long and far but make sure to come home because the love that's here is what keeps you going gives you the power and the freedom to grow let's giggle and laugh and rise up through the stress this life is crazy but it's the goddamn best when life gets complex don't think just do it first it was simpler when the uterus was so baby let me grab a hold of your body mind and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know baby let me grab a hold of your body mind and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know baby let me grab a hold of your body mind and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know baby let me grab a hold body mind and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know the uterus was my universe the uterus was my universe All conversation and information exchange contained in this podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and should not be confused with medical treatment, advice, or direction. Nothing on the podcast should supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although guests on the show are board certified and licensed physicians, they are not functioning as physicians in this environment. And no doctor-patient relationship is formed. So let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul and forever going to grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know.